Well, the beginning of Advent, we're going to turn our attention from the book of Galatians to the Psalms. So if you'd open up in your Bibles to Psalm 51, this is where we're going to be today. This is where we're going to be for the next several weeks. Last week we saw in Galatians 2 how Paul had to tear down something. Remember this? He said, I, I'm rebuilding something I tore down. And I had to tear down, what he had to tear down was an idea of himself as being righteous. Remember in, in Galatians, in Corinth, and in, in the letter to the Philippian church, Paul rehearses how he was so zealous, he was so hardworking, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was all these things that meant to him and to everybody that he was with that he was a guy who was doing it right. He said, I had to tear all that down. And what tore it down for him was his encounter with Jesus Christ and his realization of what the cross meant for him and for all of us. Well, Psalm 51 is actually the story of when King David experienced that same tearing down. This is when King David's idea of himself. King David, remember King David, great stories of David, right? Bringing down Goliath, being the guy with all the faith being the man after God's own heart, when that idea of himself was torn down. Look at me at Psalm 51. Now verse 1, I want you to notice verse 1 is verse 1. And then there's a thing above verse 1. You see that thing above verse 1? That's not verse 1, that's a thing above verse 1. Let's look at that thing above verse 1. To the choir master, a, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't tell you much about the, the occasion for this psalm, but those of you who know the story know that there's a lot, of, a, a lot packed into those few phrases. And so before we go into Psalm 51, let's look at this story a little bit. What, where is this psalm coming from? So it says a psalm of David. Who, who is David? We've already referenced him as King David. He's the king of Israel. Now I want to do something first. I want to I I show you the, the distance here between two things. So first of all, what does it mean for David to be the king of Israel? Now, okay, what, we have to understand what Israel is then, right? Israel, every nation thinks that they're the God's chosen nation, right? Every nation does. Germany, America, China, Russia, the gods were their favorites, of course, right? But only one was, because there's only one God. And so Israel is God's chosen people, chosen by God, this little nothing of a people to be the thing that he uses for his glory, to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory, and to, he says to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, to bless every family on earth. He's going to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory and bring blessings everywhere. So it is no exaggeration. This is the only time this is not an exaggeration to say that Israel is the hope of the world. Now Israel has a king, though. And the king's job then, with that sort of mission, is to oversee it. The king's job is to be the shepherd of the flourishing and expansion of the mission of God to bring this hope and good news to the world. The king is to lead God's people in submission to the word of God and in submission to the laws of God. Important points here. Right, where the king went, that's where Israel was going to go. And where Israel went is where the hope of everybody goes. This is an important thing. Now, how did David get to this place? 
Was he well-connected? He attended the right schools and joined the right fraternities? Is he somebody's kid, somebody's nephew? How did he get to this spot? To be really the most significant spiritual leader on the planet at this moment. He actually deserved it to a certain extent. Right? He was qualified. David was called out. He's the, the least of some guys, seven kids, out in the, right? You know the story. He's, just, he's a nobody, but he's called to God because God saw in his heart, he was a person of great faith. God looked at him and said, that's a guy who gets me. That's a man after my own heart. So this is where we start, right? So much depends on this. David is such an extremely important person and he's qualified for the job. This time comes in David's life, as the time comes in many of our lives, where David had brought a measure of peace and prosperity to Israel, where God had, through David, brought a measure of peace and prosperity to Israel. They weren't fighting the same kind of battles anymore. Things were a little more comfortable. There's a little more in the storage. They had a little more of everything. And so David said, well, I don't need to go out with the army this year. I'm going to take it easy. It's been a long haul, right? I've been doing this a long time. I'm going to take it easy a little bit. And so, so David's, David's home taking it easy. And then and in one night, I'm not going to spell all this out. You can go back, look in your Bibles, see the cross-reference, and read the story. One night, David's relaxing. He sees some things that he shouldn't have been looking at. And so then he starts doing some things that he shouldn't have been doing. And the consequence of this is that David arranges the murder of one of his most trusted, oldest, most loyal friends. And he had to do that because he had committed adultery with that man's wife. Uriah the Hittite is one of David's 37 mighty men. This is a group of guys who have been with him since the cave of Adullam when he was running from King Saul and he was nobody. And these are a bunch of Gentiles who saw in David hope for them. And they linked themselves up with them. And Uriah is one of his closest, oldest friends. His house is within sight of David's. And David, while he's out there fighting David's battle, commits adultery with his wife. Murder and adultery. Now, <laughs> any other ancient Near Eastern despot couldn't have cared less, right? Murdering people to sleep with whoever you wanted was kind of what they did, right? That was their thing. There's no Psalm 51s in any other ancient literature because none of those people cared. But what Israel had was this great stewardship. What Israel had was this thing you may have heard of the Ten Commandments, Right? And two of the Ten Commandments that are capital offenses are, you guessed it, murder and adultery. David deserves two death penalties. Okay, so he is the highest spiritual authority on the planet and he is committing some of the worst sins in God's eyes. But what David did is awful, but who David is makes all that worse. And so it says here that uh, Nathan the prophet went to him. It didn't always pay to be a prophet in Israel. 
This is one time where it worked out okay. It's a risky business pointing your finger at the king, isn't it? But because Nathan did that, that's why we have Psalm 51. David repents. Unbelievably, really. Right? How easy would it have been, because you and I have all been there, to justify your sin? Well, sure, it was wrong, but Uriah wasn't... Sure, it was wrong, but I've been... David repents. Why did David repent? This is an important point, and I want you to not miss this. Because some of you may be in a place where you're like, how much, as the year comes to a close, as a new year comes into focus, right? How much do I want to give myself to the Lord? How much do I want to open my life to Him? How much do I want to pursue Him? You may be having some, some, where does Jesus and the Bible stuff fit in sort of my values and my life values? David was willing as an ancient Near Eastern despot who had killed his tens of thousands. He was willing to repent of that because why? He says, I'm willing to tear down my idea of myself because in the words of Paul in Galatians 2, I want to live to God. I have a relationship. David had a real relationship with God that was so meaningful to him. He had an experience of God in his life that was so precious that he was willing to, to not kill Nathan, <laughs> to repent, and to give us Psalm 51. And I want you to see that, that while we're talking throughout Psalm 51 about a variety of things, sin and hope and, and all these things, the real relationship with God is what this psalm is after. If you look at the very end of it, then bowls will be offered on your altar. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. But I just want you to see that there's something very festive and sweet. And right, that's like a Thanksgiving scene. Imagine a giant bowl trussed up on your kitchen table. Right? That's, that's sort of what David has in mind here. Like, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to really do it up, God, because we're going to be back together. And this is what this psalm is, is after. So... One more thing before we get into really what is the, the central question for this morning. I want to, to point something out here. So while this psalm is attached to David's story, the story of David and Uriah and Bathsheba, it's stripped of all uh, historical specifics. Right? There's no mention of Bathsheba. There's no mention of Uriah. There's no mention of uh, the various sins that they would have, that David did. There's no mention of Nathan in the psalm itself. Right? All of these details from the story are stripped away. Now, why would they do that? Why would David do that or the, the people he was working with here composing this do that? They would do it so that it could be more applicable to more people. So that it would be more useful in a congregational setting. Right? Because... When, we, when, we, when it's attached to that story, but then we read these words, we think, well, if there's hope for David, if this is possible for David, then it's also going to be possible for us. Because every one of us, no matter how bad the stuff we've done was, it's a smaller gap than there was for David between how much of a spiritual authority he was and how bad the stuff he did was. 
And this is why Psalm 51 is really so important for us. It's, it's on the one hand, it's a record of David's sin and his repentance, but it's also meant to be a revelation to us of our sinfulness and of the hope of the gospel. It's a revelation of those things for us. So, what hope is there for someone like David? You might say, well, first of all, should there be hope for someone like David? Right? Is that right? He deserves death. What hope should there be for a person like David? But that's what makes this such an important psalm and such a, such a good test case because it answers the question, who can there be hope for? How we handle, how we think about and handle this awful case of sin is very important for what you and I are going to think is available to us when we realize the extent of our sin. Like, God wants us to know that when in that moment where we're like, oh my goodness, I'm awful. I'm such a sinner. I'm so petty. I'm so mean. I can't believe I've done this. We remember David and think, well, if there's hope for David, maybe there's hope for me. This is a very, very important question for all of us because all of us are fundamentally like David. What hope is there for David? Here's the message of the psalm. This is the, this is the main idea of our passage this morning. There is abundant hope for all sinners in the abundant mercies of God. We see this, this language in our text, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. You see this, your abundant mercy displayed in, in triplicate, right? Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sin. So it's, it's a restatement, a triple statement of the same idea. An expression of this abundant mercy. There's abundant hope, therefore, in the abundant mercies of God. Which is the only hope for somebody like David that there could possibly be. Because what else could David possibly do to make up for his sins? Can't bring Uriah back. Can't undo that night. What can he do? He can die. That's it. Or he can plead for mercy, which is what he does. He pleads for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. I want you to notice, what is he doing there when he says according to? According to. What's he doing? He's, he's, he's arguing, right? He's making a case. He's saying, I'm making an appeal for mercy on the basis of a thing that I've been told and I really hope is true. And what is that basis? He says, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercies. Now, why is David making his appeal on those things? And why does he think that that's a reasonable thing to appeal to? It's because this is God's own description of God's own character. This is from when Moses is on Mount Sinai and he asks God, he says, show me your glory. 
And God says, I can show you my glory. You can't see my glory and live. But here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll make my presence, I'll make my presence and goodness to pass by you. And so he puts Moses in a spot. And, and then what God does, this is interesting, to show Moses his glory, he calls out. And he says words. This is, this is one of the things why we do this, right? Because the glory of God is not mostly revealed in Scripture through spectacular visions of things, but through the Word. And God speaks and He reveals His glory here. Now, what is the very first thing out of the Lord God's mouth about His own glory to Moses? The defining characteristic The thing that God wants to be defined by. What's the first thing he says? I'm merciful. I'm merciful. And what characteristic does he emphasize through repetition? I'm a God of steadfast love. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, for thousands, now notice this as well, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Remember that? So hold that. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. In Psalm 51, David says, Blot up my transgressions, wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. There's only a few places in the whole Old Testament where all three of those things are referenced together. David has this in mind. He has hope because he knows the character of God revealed in Exodus 34. David knows God, so he has hope. Let's push on that for just a second. How did David have that? How did he come to have that knowledge and so have that hope? How did David come to have that knowledge and that hope? Well, of course, he, he'd heard the story before, but I think that we need to think about that a little bit more carefully because it's not just that this was something that David knew, but it was something that he knew in such a way that when he was in a crisis, that's what he turned to. Right? You, you know a ton of different facts. You know probably what's the right thing to do in handling a, a difficult situation, but when it comes, what do you do? You know, you call your mom, right? You call, who, who do you call in that moment? I should call 911. I should call this person. They'd be better equipped. But instead, I just oh, call, hey, help. What should I do? Is it just a reflex? Because that's what you know to do in that situation. Because you know it so well. How did David come to have this hope? How did he come to know it so well that, that in his crisis, he reached out to it? Here's how he knew it so well. This is the, I think it's the only other place before this psalm that includes all three of our our bad sin words. Leviticus 16.21. Now, Leviticus 16 is very important. The foundational documents of the people of Israel, the hope of the world, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Leviticus is central. Leviticus 16 is arguably the very center of, the most important chapter in the entire of the foundational documents of Israel. And you know what Leviticus 16 is about? It's the Day of Atonement. And in the Day of Atonement, 
the Lord tells Aaron the high priest that at a certain point in the service, he's going to lay his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the what? All of the iniquities of the people of Israel and their transgressions and their sins. All of the iniquities and transgressions and sins of all Israel for the last year is going to be put on this one sacrifice. So when David comes to his great crisis and he thinks about all of his sins that he has committed in order to to bring himself to this point, he's thinking, wait, God, he forgives all of Israel's transgressions, iniquities and sins, then maybe God can forgive mine. If God can do this, then maybe God can do this for me. So David had hope because he knew the character of God, but I want you to understand that David had that hope because of the regular worship of God's people, which he's now contributing to through Psalm 51. This is where he got that hope. And you know what? That's, that's precisely what God is trying to teach. That's why he reveals himself that way to Moses. That's why he instituted and ordained the Day of Atonement and all of the liturgies of Israel in Leviticus. This is who I am, he's saying. This is what I do. All of all y'all's iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Let me just pause for a second. Is this who you know God to be? Abounding in steadfast love, abounding in mercies, taking up all sins, transgressions, and iniquities. Is this who you know God to be? David did, and so in his direst moment, in his lowest moment, truly low, and he truly deserved to be there, doggone it. This ain't some spiritual brokenness. This isn't feeling bad about not being uh, humble enough or something. (laughs) This is real stuff, and he deserves to be there. And in that place, he remembers God. And he remembers that there is abundant hope in the abundant mercies of God. And there is abundant mercy for all our sins, therefore, as well. You know what mercy is? How's mercy different from grace? Mercy is what? Mercy is uh, not getting the consequences, the punishment that all our bad things deserve. We've done bad things. We should be punished, but we're, we don't get the punishment, right? That's what mercy is. Grace is all of these good things that you don't deserve, I'm giving them to you. You did nothing to earn them, but I'm giving them to you. Here's all the bad stuff you did earn, and I should give you the consequences, but I'm not going to. That's mercy. What we deserve, of course, is punishment. Right? Why shouldn't we deserve punishment? We should get the consequences for all of our sinful actions and all of our sinful inactions. Right? Every time you... You thought that would be good to do, and then you don't do it. Is a sin, is a problem, is bringing darkness into the world instead of light. We should get the full consequences for all those things brought into our lives immediately. Why not? That's what we deserve. And that would be bad. Let's just say that would be bad. That would be worse than whatever it is that you're going through right now, right? (laughs) That would be horrible. That would be terrible. That would not be good. 
But what does this psalm hold out to us? What did Leviticus hold out to us? What did Exodus reveal to us? It says that all of our transgressions can be erased. And all of our iniquity, all of our guilt, and, and the stain of that shame can be washed away. And all my sins can be cleansed from me. There is, in the stories of the, that the tabernacle told through its rituals, through the Day of Atonement, where the, the priest puts his hands on this animal and puts ceremonials, right, the, the sort of the theater here, puts everybody's sins on that animal. And then one of the animals is killed and brought before God and the other is sent away into the wilderness. And the message of that ceremony, the message is that there is a complete forgiveness and a complete forgiveness and forgetting. In the words of another psalm, I think a reflection on Leviticus 16, says that the Lord God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, how far is that, right? How far is that? So far does he remove our transgressions from us. And so now we can come before God again without fear. We can now live to God and enjoy that real relationship that we want to have again. As far as the east is from the west, scientifically, mathematically, how far is that? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a brain twister. It, how, is it 1,000 miles? Is that how far the east is from the west? Is it 100,000 miles? What's the measure of that? You know, God's mercies, they're, they're God's, right? So what does that mean is true about them? It means that they're an expression of his own self and character. So when the, when the psalmist says abundant, you know what it means, is it means infinite. It means infinite mercies. And infinite mercies means... There's always more than whatever you got. Infinite means always more. Whatever you bring to it. I should be the most holy and spiritual leader on the planet and I have just broken two out of the ten and two of the worst ones. There's more. What's your thing? You've got a pile, you've got a little stack, you've got a... There's more. There's always more. We're coming into the Christmas season. And Christmas is really, it's a celebration of how God's abundant mercies truly and really came to sinners. David knew of God's mercies because he had that that temple, that tabernacle picture that God had given to Israel of the good news that by some death, lamb, goat, whatever, by some death, they might be forgiven. But of course, nobody in Israel was such a, such a hillbilly, right? That they thought that, that, actually, that the lambs actually worked or the goat actually worked. They knew that that was just a picture of something else. The priests are explaining this. This lamb, this goat, is a picture of Messiah. 
This lamb and goat is a picture of the promised offspring to Abraham, the promised seed of the woman. That's what this is. This is a picture of someone who is going to have to come and be pierced for our transgressions and be wounded for our iniquities. And upon him was going to have to come the punishment that all our sins deserve. And of course, this is Christmas. That's Jesus, right? Jesus. Matthew 1. Jesus isn't even born yet. The angel comes to Joseph and he says, He is going to be the one. Through Him, He is going to be the one to save His people, Israel, from all their sins. He's the one. Not the goat. All your transgressions, sins, and iniquities. Jesus is. He's going to be the one to take all their sins away. John 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All the sins of all my people. All the sins of all the world. Jesus, I didn't, I didn't say this right. Jesus is the only hope of all sinners. He's the only hope of sinners. He's the only hope of all sinners. Make sure all goes in there if you're taking notes. Jesus is the only hope of all sinners because every sinner finds hope. Hey, we're all part of some, the people of God. We're all part of the world. That means us. And here's how. You know, David deserved death, right? We don't want to just sweep this over or sweep this under the rug or just hide it in our closet. We're going to bring it out here. David deserved death. Sinners deserve death. But who died? This is, what, this is what Paul was talking about in Galatians 2. Jesus died. Now, God can, he can't do injustice, right? It's not enough for David to be like, oh, shoot, God, I'm really sorry. I killed that guy. And, and God's going to be like, oh, David, you old so-and-so, get on in here. Right? That's not how it's, you know, what about all Uriah's family and friends? What about Bathsheba's family and friends? What? How does he, right? God can't do that. He can't be merciful. He can't forgive the sins of the world apart from a sufficient sacrifice. There's got to be some sacrifice, big enough, wide enough, deep enough, for God to be able to throw all the sins of the world into it and there to be even more remaining, more mercy. So to do justice... And to justify so many and of such quality of sinners, (laughs) Jesus came. And the cross then is the source, it's the spigot for the infinite mercies of God to come to us. So this morning, friends, let him. (laughs) Let, let let, Let this happen. Let mercy come. And wash away what you've done. That's David's prayer here. Let mercy come and wash away what you've done. Let this be true for you. Let it be true for you. That means receive it. It's for you, Lord. I'm going to receive it. And then believe it. I believe that this is true for me. And maybe you're here. I think most of you here would say that I have done that. I have let this be true for me. I have believed it. I have received it. Well then, friends... Let this be the truth about you. Let it be true for you. Let it be the truth about you. Meaning, if this is what's happened for you, friends, you're not mostly a sinner. You're mostly saved. This is, this is the identity now. 
for the people of God. And here's a, just a little bit of practical, practical word, thinking about 2023. Right? David knew the character of God, as we pointed out, because he had received it in weekly worship. Right? Year after year, David learned the truth of God, and he knew it when he needed it, because over and over again, from one sinner after another, year after year, he had heard God praised and thanked for his abundant mercies. And so, friends, be in the word. Be faithful to your church. Be listening for and telling of God's mercies. Learn God's mercies together with God's people. Because the reality is all of us need this message either already or probably sooner than you would like. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Friends, that means us. In Psalm 51, in Psalm 51 David asks for the mercy that Jesus offers, that, that Jesus brings. A mercy as big as God himself, infinitely bigger than all our sins. Let's pray. And in this moment, reflect on the extent to which you have received the abundant mercies of God for yourself. And whether you, the extent to which you see yourself as somebody who's been washed and cleansed and forgiven. Heavenly Father, we come before you with the same things on our mind as as David brings in Psalm 51. How often this last week we have looked at pennies as if they were the sun in our life. We have magnified and glorified our problems. We have excused and defended our poor behavior. We have said things we shouldn't have said. We have withheld blessings that we should have given. And that's just this week. Lord, nothing is hidden from the eyes of You with whom we have to do. You see our sins, our iniquities, our transgressions, all the ways that we've gone astray, all the guilt and shame, all the sin. And yet You are a God abounding in steadfast love. You are a God merciful. And your mercies are infinite. Your mercies are new every morning. And they're for every single one of us to return to and receive today. Lord, I know many of us know and love Jesus and we know and love these truths about you but maybe it's been a while since we have thoughtfully applied them to our own situation so that now we carry around some sort of totally unnecessary psychic weight of guilt and shame, which you, through what you've already done in Jesus and already done for us through our faith, you've already taken care of. And so, Lord, I pray that this truth this morning might set us all a little more free 
And some of us, Lord, we've heard about this sort of thing. We know it's possible, but we've never, we've never truly received it. Lord, would you work in, in our hearts then and open our hearts to receive this good news, to truly believe it, to believe it's for us, and to know ourselves to be yours now, saved, washed, cleansed, living in the mercies of God. Lord, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for this church, this space, this time to be together, to reflect on these things, to put, to put things in our lives back in right proportion, and to gaze upon the beautiful sun once more. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.